Hey everybody, this is Marn. What you are about to hear is a episode that is a part of a pilot season of a horror book club podcast that was recorded in the winter of 2019-2020, with the last episode being recorded literally right before quarantine uh, went into effect. That's just some context for the pilot season of Dead Letter Society. After this season airs, it will be back with a slightly different different format, but until then, enjoy! podcast. I'm Marn, your spooky host, and every other week I'm going to bring a friend into my library of terrors to discuss a novel, short story, or bit of interactive fiction that scares us. Today we're going to talk about The Hunger by Alma Katsu, and with me is my good friend Cal, author of the Quaria web serial. And before we get super into the weeds on this one, I want to give content warnings for this book. I am a big proponent of content warnings when it comes to horror. All of these things are not necessarily things that we're going to discuss in detail on this podcast, but if you are thinking about reading this book, uh, you should probably go in with these warnings. So without further ado, this book contains cannibalism, implied sexual assault of adults and minors, actual sexual assault of adults and minors, period, typical stuff surrounding minors being expected to get married and start families, uh, homophobia, animal death, implied incest, and racism against Native Americans. And I think that's everything? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there could be more. This book is all content warning. Yeah. So this book, we are gonna discuss the plot a little bit before we go in and like actually discuss how we feel about it. The Hunger is a fictional retelling of the Donner Party. So it pulls a lot of stuff from real life accounts of what happened to the Donner Party, but it also takes like a weird magical realism horror angle on it. Yeah, like a, a supernatural kind of twist. Yeah, and I think there are also characters in it who are made up for the book. There there are a couple of them that weren't there in the real accounts, but they're generally made to stand in for somebody who was actually there. And so the plot of this book is basically, if you know what happened to the Donner Party, you you know what's going to happen in this book. <laughs> yeah, we got that, that sweet cannibalism warning out there first, so. Yeah. But it is a horror novel told from the perspective of a couple different uh, people who are traveling with the Donner Party. There's Tamsin Donner, who is George Donner's wife. There's So there's Mary Graves, who is like a younger woman traveling with the Wagon Party. There's... Uh, Stanton. Yeah, there's, there's Stanton, who is like a bachelor traveling with the Wagon Party. He is trying to travel to California to, like, escape something bad that he did that you kind of find out more about later in the book. 
There's uh, Edwin Bryant. He's one of the, he's, he was a doctor. He's a journalist now. He's like, I'm going to go study Native American culture for reasons that are extremely relevant later. Uh, and then there's James Reed, who is one of like the leaders of the wagon party, but a lot of people like don't trust him. And there's, is one of the Donner daughters a point of view character or am I making that up? Uh, Aletha Donner is. And so she can like see ghosts or she can hear ghosts and is kind of the first one to have a sense of like, hey, something terrible is going to happen to our wagon party. Yeah, she gets into that like right off the bat. Yeah, so the story kicks off with they find a missing boy from the wagon party and he turns up murdered. He is like gruesomely pulled apart. By the way, there's also like child death and everyone death in this book. Also Um, gore. Also gore, yeah, definitely gore. So yeah, they they find this this boy who has been like pulled apart. Don't they like only find his head? They find all of him, but his skeleton is pretty much left alone. But imagine a skeleton with like nothing attached to it except the head that is perfectly normal and looks like like you're just asleep and it's it's about that creepy. And then they like the guys who find it just like decide not to tell anybody about it. <laughs> Men. Which is yeah, which is like your classic horror prologue mistake. Um, yeah, they're like, we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to bury it because we don't want to freak the women and children out. Yeah. Um, Nobody and it, talk about this ever again. And from there, it kind of like follows the daughter party as like things go wrong. People die. People like split the party. But It gets into their whole journey as they start going through like various sports and hardships. The, the salt flats, for example. Yeah, and uh, the whole way they are kind of, they have this, like, specter of, like, something weird and supernatural hanging over them that is, like, making some of them sick and making some of them act really unnaturally. Um, It's making some of them hungry. Yeah, and you get, like, another narrative about the journalist who kind of splits off from the party and is investigating, like, people who have had this, like, weird disease where they start eating their families, and you get flashbacks sometimes, and you find out, like... We, we get that- a lot of letters as well, don't we? Yeah, the the journalist, um, Edwin, is sending letters to people about what he's up to. And if you know the Donner Party story, you know that this resolves eventually with uh, a lot of people getting eaten. So many. So many. Because towards the end of this book, you find out that one of the main kind of antagonists is knowingly a carrier for this like weird supernatural rabies-esque virus and he was like part of a family that is all like known carriers of this virus and it made his uncle go crazy and kill a bunch of people in a mine and then from the mine it like spread to other people uh and you find out that he has been spreading this virus to other people in the camp and that is why everyone became cannibals. To be fair, it should be mentioned he wasn't spreading it intentionally. Yeah. But, uh, still pretty bad. And then there's, like, there was, like, another thing that I couldn't really tell if it was related. There were, like, also people with the weird rabies virus following specifically the Donner family. Some some of the people, like, get taken and end up, like, as part of that, like, pack of rabies people that is following specifically those guys. And I think it was meant to be that, uh, possibly the people who got, like, left behind on, on the trails. Okay. Or possibly just, like, uh... 
just people that they encountered out there were getting the virus as well. Because we were shown, I think, at one of the forts that it was not just this one dude spreading it, but like oh, there were yeah. one of those cannibal people just out in the wild. Yeah, they they go to one of the forts and they like find some guy who has the virus like that they've locked in a shed. And then I think you find out that like the way that it originally spread in the wagon party is that like one of their dogs like picked it up and then bit someone else in the party and then that guy you know from earlier in the book was like really sick and then he got better. And then he. It was actually, like, um, it was that, but it was the dog bit the guy who was a carrier first. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then the other guy got it from the dog. And then it just all went downhill from there. It's weird because it's like kind of a zombie virus situation, kind of like a magical realism rabies situation. And it just kind of posits that, like, it's like, oh, what if the Donner Party didn't, like, kill and eat each other because human bodies just do that sometimes like what what if it was uh like a zombie virus and kind of getting into the discussion portion of this now i did not think that this book was that scary because it couldn't measure up in my mind to like the actual story of what happened to the donner party and like how sometimes human bodies are just like fucked up and will do that and like make you commit a cannibalism yeah that was that was very scary i i admit the book scared me a bit but that's because as you already know but the audience doesn't i i don't read a lot of horror and i write a lot of like uh fun supernatural mystery fiction so reading this and knowing already what i knew about the donner party i was like oh man messed up this is scary (laughs) um I think the research I did into it afterwards to compare and contrast, because I'm from Oregon, so we all learn about the Donner Party. Like, we all know. In elementary school, we're like, oh, and by the way, the Donner Party didn't make it here because they all ate each other. We're not going to talk anymore about that. But uh, yeah, so the real stuff was arguably much worse. And the book kind of cut off, actually, even before it got bad. Yeah, the the book kind of uh, cuts off right when they find the survivors at the camp with, like, the cabins where they were all eating each other. And I thought that that was kind of unsatisfying because it's like, yeah, they survived, but, like, I don't know. Yeah, like, who's still infected and what's going on and... Yeah, there was, like, a lot of kind of, like, dangling plot threads that never really got answered. There's, like, a group that goes off on their own and, like, hikes down the mountain alone and you kind of, like, find out extremely tangentially what happened to them. And I kind of wanted more of a resolution there. Yeah, me too. I mean, I guess I kind of got a resolution because I know what really happens. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah! It wasn't going to... If I was going in blind to this book, then, like, I would have been... And I was still kind of unsatisfied, because it, it kicks off where they're in the cabins, and it totally time skips to one of the many rescue groups getting there. Yeah, it's kind of weird, because, like, on one hand, I almost appreciate that most of the actual cannibalism that happens is off-screen, and it doesn't get very, like, voyeuristic about it, or, like, really graphic and detailed. But on the other hand, the end of the book does a lot of assuming that if you're reading this, you know what happened and it doesn't have to explain a lot to you. Yeah, and that's that's a good way to get like historical fiction readers into it. Like like I said, this is something I learned about and I like history, so but uh I don't think it would be very friendly necessarily the ending to new readers. Something I will say is that I think that this book benefits greatly 
from being written by a woman of color. Like, I don't know that I would trust very many white male authors to write a book with this premise. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's uh, the book is really good with the female point of views. It handles a lot of the racism aspects of the pioneer time period very, I think, tactfully. They're just like it was a racist time, but we're that's not necessarily going to be the focus of this book. Yeah, I thought so too, and especially because they also have characters in there who are like, yeah, no, clearly the cannibalism stuff like isn't a Native American thing because that doesn't make any sense at all. I was just kind of surprised that like that's one of the first things off the bat that you see in the book about the the Native Americans is that one of the characters is like, well, I don't think that they're the ones doing these murders because that doesn't make sense to me at all. I know these facts about them and I respect them and I was like, huh, cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Especially, I mean, the time period did get into that where everyone was like, okay, shut up. You don't you don't know anything. But like the fact that the, the point of view character was like there and they were like, hey, seriously, guys. And I, I just I like the diversity of like the women point of views in this. Oh, yeah, same. That's what I was going to get into. Like, uh, like the, there are various women whose points of views you get, and you don't necessarily get that in a lot of historical literature, especially not when it comes to women being like, our lot in life kind of sucks, and this is why, and the men are being not misogynistic, but also that. Masculinity caused multiple deaths in the Donner Party, and that's what I'm going to say about that. Uh, they go into it a lot about, like, the women's point of view and how they're like, well, they're not going to listen to me because I'm a woman or this sort of thing. And I thought that was very, uh, very interesting and probably very real as to how women felt at the time. Yeah, and I liked also that the two kind of main, like, female point of view characters who are Mary, Graves, and Tamsin Donner aren't necessarily friends, but they kind of have this understanding between each other that they're two very much kind of loner women in this group full of men who don't listen to them. Yeah, I think Aletha also gets in on that as a point of view character, though that comes probably the second half of the book. But uh, she she does get very into the whole, I hear ghosts and this sucks, but also I hear ghosts and if they hear that, they're going to think I'm, I'm a hysteric woman and I can't help them. Yeah, another thing that this book does in terms of like magical realism is that it posits that Tamsin Donner was a witch which was interesting to me because I have listened to stuff about the Donner Party in the past and I don't think I remember that much about Tamsin Donner but I would be curious no there, there was wasn't like... there was not if, okay. if your question would... she was never accused of witchcraft in, in the stuff I've read I read a lot of first person uh stuff from the uh from actually one of the younger Donner she wrote a book about the whole thing and went and talked to the other survivors I think it was Eliza oh okay cool yeah so I read a lot of stuff but she was only three or four at the time so like I said she was talking to a lot of other survivors but I didn't read any about Tamsin doing any witchcraft or anything. And in the book, it only posted as Tamsin liked herbs and sometimes made little charms that her old nursemaid made and kept them by her children to keep them safe. Yeah. I was just curious if there was any, like, historical evidence that she did practice witchcraft, but I guess there wasn't. Not that I can see, but that would have been so cool. I, I feel like this, this book does that a lot where it kind of takes details that might not really have been there and forms them into kind of like richer backstories for the characters like whether or not they're true which is yeah i guess it's something that a lot of historical fiction does but there were 
I, there were kind of instances in this book where I felt weird about it and instances where I was like, okay, I, I this makes sense to me. Yeah, there are some pieces of historical fiction where you're not necessarily true to that, but I think this being a supernatural retelling and the fact that it didn't make Tamsin out to be like a weird witch villain or anything about it, like, so I'm pretty okay with it, at least in that regard. Yeah, the thing that was weird to me was the decision to make James Reed gay. Okay, 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 yes. I think it was very well done, the way that they did it, at least to some degree. But it was also very weird. Yeah, I felt weird about it because I went and tried to look for evidence that he was actually gay. Because I was like, I was curious about where the author was getting it from. And I was like, oh, did she like research this and actually find out that he was having an affair with this other man? But it seems like she just completely made that up. And that seems like a bonkers thing to me to make up about a historical figure and just be like, yeah, he had an affair with another man and put that okay. in your book. Okay, hold on. I can explain it a little bit. I mean, I can't make it less weird, but I can at least, I think, explain why he decided to go that direction. Okay. Okay, it's because there are two guys on the team. There's James Reed, and then there's a guy named Snyder. And James Reed is gay for Snyder in this book. I mean, just gay in general. But uh, basically, in the real Donner Party, at some point after the Salt Flats, James Reed does murder Snyder, but there are no recollections as to why it happened. Because right. all, all the survivors are were basically children. So all the published stuff we have is from their point of view, and they weren't really allowed to see that. So uh, they did have a mysterious argument that resulted in Snyder's death. And I can't say if that makes it better or worse. It, it does make it weird. But uh, that is the, the reality, I think, behind that decision, was that they needed a reason for him to be concerned enough with Snyder to kill him. I don't know. It just came off as really odd to me, because like I feel like if I were writing a historical fiction book about the Donner Party, I would not look at my manuscript and be like, you know what my historical cannibalism zombie virus book needs? Gay representation. To be fair, at least he didn't die. This is not a case of bury your gays. That's true. He just arrived at the end and he like becomes the big hero who rescues everybody. However, I don't know. I, it feels like a weird decision to make about like a character who was technically a real person that you don't have any evidence to go off yeah there's there's a weird line in historical fiction of like if some historical characters you can write as gay because there's some evidence at least of bisexuality or in the case of some english nobles some very very big evidence towards being actually gay but it's it's harder to uh to go back into something that is actually documented like the Donner Party and to put that on somebody where where the case has been shown like it's probably like realistically he was probably not. I feel like I was thinking about this because I was like, well, I there was another like historical fiction thing that I saw last year, which was the favorite, and that kind of puts a gay narrative into a historical story and I was like well I didn't feel weird about that why do I feel weird about this and I think that the difference is that there's less historical context for like a member of the Donner Party being gay than there is for like Queen Anne being gay for one of her handmaidens 
Oh, yeah. I think the context entirely lies in how much documentation there is. I mean, though, that being said, if Reed was actually gay, and I do doubt it, but if he was, chances were none of the kids would have known about that. Like, he probably would have kept that on lockdown. But uh, the fact that it is so well documented makes it kind of, you know, makes it a little weirder. So do we, that said, do we want to get into some of the, like, fact versus what happens in the book stuff? Because I know that you made a really big document Haha! Yes. <laughs> I love historical fiction and history. Guess who's a history minor, guys? It's me. Which makes you a good choice to talk about this. Yeah, so Cal took notes in a big document about a bunch of the characters in this book and what happens to them in the book versus what happened to them in real life. Do we want to start with the characters or do you want me to go over the overall plot stuff first? Why don't we go over the overall plot? plot stuff and then we'll get into the weeds on the characters all right so for starters the overall plot stuff it's probably about the same up up towards the uh the salt flats in the book which probably hits about a third of the way there because that's about when they get to the uh fort laramie down in wyoming and so what happens is that's basically the last fort they stop on is fort laramie it's before they take their little shortcut the whole donner party is famous for basically they're going to take the shortcut to the new world because a lawyer looked at a map and was like this should be easy. They were going to take this shortcut and he sent a letter back and he was like, hey, don't do that. I messed up really bad. Don't do this. And he sends back multiple letters. And as in the book and real life, the uh, the keeper of uh, the fort down at Laramie hid those letters because he wanted to make some money. I forget his name, but we hate him. <laughs> Listen, I've got so many opinions on this. Oh, don't hide, don't hide letters that endanger lives just to make a couple extra bucks. Don't do that. But uh, so then they get towards the salt flats, and that's people are having to abandon stuff out of their wagons. It should have only taken a day or two at the rate the wagon was going to travel across the salt flats, which are they're big if you're going on foot, but they're not that big in the overall scheme of things. You could get through it in a car in probably like under an hour. But uh, going with a wagon, it would take a day or two. And it took them probably, what, 12 to 14 days to get across. So they were having to abandon stuff. They were having to drop stuff on the side of the road. Some people lost their whole wagons. And actually, I was looking at some photographs. Uh, people traced the Donner Party back in the mid-1900s. And their stuff was all still there. And their wagon tracks were still there. That's crazy. It is crazy and really sad. And uh, I think a good warning if you're like, I'm going to go in this direction where there's one really old trail and nothing else. <laughs> I don't think you should go that way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the point is it's basically been undisturbed after the Donner Party. People did not, uh, they did not try again. It was a very well-publicized thing, what happened. And then, let's see, uh, oh yeah, some people actually got murdered, like, by party members, and not actually by, like, rabid cannibal people, as in the book. They actually just got murdered out of greed. Yeah, I, I kind of deduced that from context clues. <laughs> yeah, from context clues, yeah, some people just get murdered because they had money, and some people just got left behind because they couldn't keep up and couldn't walk anymore. So they're like, well, we're going to leave this like 70 year old man in the salt flats and hopefully he'll be fine. He was super not fine. I'm going to go out and say that. The one thing that was interesting to me was like in kind of the later half of the book, there is a kid who gets infected and starts attacking people. And that actually happened. A couple of the kids, when they started getting uh, hypothermic and starved, they started going, uh, a little bonkers yonkers and they were just like uh one kid actually did bite another kid and just be like oh man i'm hungry i'm just gonna yeah wasn't it because they were able to eat for the first time in a while and like for one of the kids it just set off his body 
to where he was so hungry that he just started attacking people. Yes, it was. Uh, what actually happened was he found a mouse and he just crammed that whole thing in his mouth and it reset the entire... Because your body gets really hungry for about 72 hours when you're starving and then it kind of stops and tapers off and it's like, okay, we're not getting any food because it just you, you just really want to eat for those 72 hours. But once you get past that, then it's kind of like, okay, we're not going to get any food for a while. We got to go into like storage mode start eating ourselves, that kind of thing. But by eating that mouse, he reset the whole process and just went, like, nuts. See, that is much scarier to me than going, oh, they just have rabies. Yeah, that is... <laughs> the real thing is a lot scarier, I'll be real with you. It's messed up that our bodies will just make us attack people like that. Yeah, one of the freakiest things I heard was actually after that 72-hour point, uh, your breath starts to smell like nail polish. Oh, like, I think I've heard this before, yeah. Yeah, it starts to smell like that uh, because your liver and your organs start trying to break themselves down to make yourself mm-hmm. a little longer, and that freaks me out. I had nightmares about nail polish after this book. But uh, And then let's see what else. Oh yeah, once your body gets past that point, did you know you actually have to ration what you eat really carefully to bring yourself back out of that starvation point? Because otherwise you will just go nuts. Yeah, I did actually know that which is yeah i I just learned that and i was like oh wow that's even worse actually yeah a lot of the kids who got rescued uh from the aftermath of the donner party were like messed up afterwards oh yeah and getting them back was hard because they were in real life and not in the book where you had rabid cannibalism they were basically rabid cannibal children yeah and uh the rescuers actually i think learned that they had to ration what they were giving the kids very very strictly when they brought them back, because otherwise they would just go nuts. Mm-hmm. There was an uh, there was an account of that. I think it was the third relief party. There were four total, and they were like, "We have all these children, and we have to give them very careful scraps of food." And I read that in um in I think Eliza Donner's diary actually. Another thing is that kind of because the cannibalism gets glossed over a lot in the book, like it not basically none of it happens on screen. Yeah, it's all heavily implied, but we don't actually, like, see it happen. Yeah, it's it's implied, and then, like, Tamsin Donner kind of shows up to the camp after the fact and, like, finds all the bodies and figures out what's been happening. Um, but you, ne- you, you really never see any of it on screen, which, on one hand, fine, I understand, like, it's interesting not to have it be very voyeuristic about the cannibalism, and that's almost how I would prefer to read about it. But on the other hand, I feel like you kind of lose stuff like the fact that people back in those days were okay with cannibalism, kind of, if it was like a life or death situation. But the thing that they found really unacceptable was eating your own relatives. Yeah, the cannibalism thing, it was very much so like, like, like Moby Dick style. Like, I think we we read about some guys, uh, back in England that you told me about, where they ate each other, obviously, because they were sailors on a ship, there were no food, and the only guy who got punished was the dude who ate his cousin. Yeah, so there, so Moby Dick was based on this actual incident that happened where there was a whale ship that got attacked by a whale and essentially capsized, and the survivors all ended up on two different lifeboats, and one of the lifeboats did not make it back to land in time for the guys on it to not starve, basically. And they ended up eating, I think, a couple of the guys who were on the boat and were kind of dying anyway. But when they got back to England, people... Were they from England or were they from America? Hold on now. 
Yeah, they were from America. I was like, I feel like it was a it was a Massachusetts thing because Moby Dick. <laughs> Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, I got questions on what's going on over there in the East Coast. Do we need to have like a talk before I come visit? So yeah, so some of them basically just died from exposure, and they were like, "Well, we have no food. Uh, we're gonna have to like butcher and eat these guys." And when they got back to land, people kind of were like. Yeah, like, we understand why you had to do this, basically, and none of them got, like, in trouble for it, except for the one guy who ate his own cousin, his family, like, Yeah, because that's where you draw the line. Uh, I guess. That's, uh, apparently, I mean, legally speaking, I guess that's where you drew the line back then, but, um... The Donner Party was really careful about that as well, but they also went to, uh, it did freak them out. Obviously, no one enjoys cannibalism, and unless you are one man in this, who we'll discuss later. Yeah. But we hate him as well. <laughs> but, um, the Donner Party went to great lengths to dehumanize the meat they were eating, and to make it look like the people weren't people necessarily. Like, chop off the limbs, chop off the head, eat, like, the organs and the torso, but, like, do that all away from the limbs and the head. Like, they would basically try to make it out to be like, it's just me. It's not a person anymore. I mean, that makes sense to me. <laughs> it does, but I don't think it worked as well as they, they hoped it would. I mean, I think it was necessary to actually, like, get at the meat, but, like, somebody's still out there chopping limbs off. Yeah. At least the kids didn't have to see it, so. Were there any other really big differences in the plot besides kind of, like, the cannibalism stuff and some of the deaths? Besides some of the character stuff that we talked about, like, no mention anywhere of Alita hearing about ghosts, Tamsin was not a witch, Reed wasn't gay, that sort of thing. If you mean, like, plot-wise, like, story-wise, actually the guy we hate, and we can get into this now, his name is Kiesper, and he may have actually been worse in real life. Right. Okay, so the the guy who the book posits was kind of like a carrier for this supernatural rabies is named Louis Kiesberg, and he was a real person. And we hate him. He, Both versions of him. Yeah, and he was not a great guy. Oh, can I can I dig into this? That how much I hate him? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, basically this dude, he's black-tempered, he's violent, he's always spoiling for a fight, at least in the book. It's pretty much the same in real life. He's really smart. In the book, he abused his wife and infant daughter. I couldn't find proof of that in real life, but I would not have been surprised, frankly. In the book, he... Okay, content warnings come into play here, guys, so you don't want to hear it? Skip maybe like a minute. Basically, he, uh, he hits on, I believe, Alita, who's 13 or 14 in the book. He takes... Uh, some attempted murder of Stanton. He uh, assaulted several children aged 13, 12, 12, and 9, and explicitly tells Tamsin Donner later on that her daughters are safe from him. Not in the abuse way, but in the death way, uh, because they are pretty. Uh, he's very creepy, basically, and there's no no reference of him assaulting people in real life, but what he did in real life is arguably also extremely bad. Yeah, but he killed a baby. Yeah, yeah, in, in real life he killed, I believe it was William Eddy's baby. Uh, he was a year old, and he killed him, and he hung him up on the wall, like a messed up decoration, and ate him. And the only reason he didn't die, and I think there were probably like a bunch of different times they all could have killed him, and nobody would have batted an eye. 
and they should have, but uh, they didn't. And William Maddie was like, well, there's been enough death and violence down here, but if I ever see you in California, I'll kill you. It's bonkers to me that this guy faced absolutely no consequences for what he did. And even in the book, like, I don't know. I was surprised that, like, when you find out his backstory, it almost tries to, like, make him a little bit sympathetic of, like, oh, yeah, he has, like, the cannibal gene or whatever, but, like, he tries really hard not to eat people, you guys. And I was like, I don't care. Kill this schmuck. Right? And the the book had, he had arguably, I think, one of the best lines in the book, uh, because he was the guy who, everybody else in the book was inside the camps, and he was like, I'm the one who kills and butchers people so that everybody else can eat. Maybe it takes one demon to keep the others away. Lucifer had always been an angel first, and I always remembered that. Like, that is a hardcore metal line, but it does not apply to this dude after he is assaulted. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. Like, if he wanted to be sympathetic, like, shouldn't have done that one. And that's, he's such a weird character to pick to choose to kind of make sympathetic towards the end, because in real life, he did so much other stuff as well. Yeah, he was definitely, like, the real-life antagonist of the Donner Party. And, like, a party that was pretty full of people who you could say were more or less antagonists. Oh yeah, no, he was the he was the big one. And he he was the one who also walked away without consequences, which I think is interesting that the book does not go into any of that because you don't even see him at the end of the book. No, no, and he was still there. He was rescued last. Essentially what happened was after he killed the baby, that was the third relief group and they're like we're going to leave you here because we hate you. <laughs> which is reasonable. I also yeah. hate him. When the fourth relief gets there, that's the last rescue party, uh, the, there are only four or three people there left. George Donner was basically dying because he had injured himself and it was infected. Tamsin Donner was still there and she was staying with him until he died. And what happened basically was once he died, Tamsin was like, all right, got to go meet up with my kids. See ya. And he murdered her. And uh, while we don't have like explicit proof, this was like, what like the late 1800s early 1900s and they like but like we know what happened there, there are first-hand accounts from the rescuers who are like oh no he killed her for sure and it didn't help that uh he also ate george donner and when the rescuers arrived his head was cracked open like all the stuff still on it it was just imagine a human head cracked open but the brains are all in a stew pot yeah wait so the- it was bad so the donner parents survived in real life longer than they survive in the book uh, yeah, correct. The book uh, kind of speeds everything up towards they all die before any rescue parties get there, but they were all well alive until about, uh, until the fourth rescue party. That's interesting. I wonder if the author made that choice because she knew that the Donner party, or like the Donner family kind of split off from the other party and it was just kind of more convenient to have them stay in one place. For the sake of, like, I think I think that's book. entirely possible. The Donners and the other families more or less were split between three like little camps to themselves. So I do I do get that choice that she made. But also the worst of it, like the book ends before pretty much any of the rescue parties get there, aside from a brief aside from what was the second rescue party. And arguably the scariest and worst things happened as the rescue parties were arriving and leaving. Yeah, in retrospect. It is kind of weird that the book ends where it does. <laughs> yeah, because, I, like, I think the biggest part of the Donner Party, like, they really don't even start, like, eating people in earnest until one of the rescue parties gets there. 
And that's just because the rescue parties had to come on foot and they couldn't bring supplies with them. So they, they really had no choice at that point. That's wild. Didn't they, when they first started with the cannibalism thing, didn't they like draw straws to figure out who was going to get eaten? I feel like what, I... what happened was in the camps, people just died and it was a matter of whose bodies they could get to because like maybe five or six people who died got buried, but the snowdrifts were coming in 20 feet tall and they couldn't get to them anymore. Those bodies were like encased in a tomb of ice. There was no way anyone was getting to them. So when it got down to cannibalism, it came down to who has died most recently that is not in a place that is absolutely unreachable to us. Because uh, they didn't really have to draw straws at that point because people were just dropping like flies. But it was the Forlorn Hope group that went to go get help. Those guys were the ones that were like, let's draw straws. Except for Eddie, the the father of the one-year-old who Heesberg ate, was like, no, one of us is going to die soon enough, so let's just wait. And it happened, so. Yeah, see, it's it's even scarier to me that, like, the cannibalism didn't actually start until the rescue group started showing up. Like, I, uh... I think, uh... Maybe part of the reason for that is because the the sheer desperation of you have to understand how many children were involved. Yeah. Like, the group was well over half children. I think I have the exact numbers, actually, in my document, if you give me a sec. Let me see. At Truckee Lake, there were 60 people who, who lived to make it that far. The party was probably 80 or 90 to start, but just people died along the way. Uh, 19 were men, uh, 12 were women, and 29 were children, six of which whom were toddlers or younger. Woof. So the total was 25 men, 16 women, and 42 children. I think the cannibalism got worse later on is not only to feed the remaining children, but the rescue party is absolutely prioritized getting the children out. See, like, that is super scary to me that all of these children were participating in cannibalism and, like, what happened to them afterwards. And I, I almost wish that this book had gone into that and the consequences of what happened. Um, yeah, I think the desperation could have been upped a lot more. Like, there was a man, William Eddy, again, who single-handedly took down a bear by himself, during hypothermia and starvation. He killed a whole bear! Those are huge! And, like, I also kind of wish that it had gone into just, like, the environmental hazards that the Donner Party ran into, because the salt flats... Is only like a couple chapters, but actually they were there for a really, really long time. And that was like the worst part of their whole trip. Yeah, it was like two weeks of uh, everything starving. All the cattle were going like insane from thirst. So like they couldn't, like there was no food. They had to kill off cows because there was nothing to drink for them. Or they had to set them loose. And there was like, it was horrible. Imagine being like surrounded by salt so bad, like your whole skin is caked in salt all the time. Because they were going through a sandstorm as well when it happened, which is the worst possible thing that could have happened. The Oregon Trail is conceptually horrifying. Literally, I think every single day about how children of families who were doing wagon trains to Oregon would just walk into the tall grass and never come back. Well, yeah, man. Like, oh, let me tell you this. Because uh, I spent a, a not insignificant portion of my childhood in Wyoming, which is uh, big plains lands. It's flat and there's grass everywhere and it's tall stuff. And like you played in a specific area. Like you told people like, hey, I'm going to be right here. And they'd be like, cool. Okay, you stay right in this area. Because like if you're traveling on a wagon train, you walk into the grass, like no one is going to find you again. Yeah, exactly. And like, I was almost disappointed that this book didn't have more of that because, like, even if you're doing zombies and ghosts and all of that, 
I, I feel like you could still use the environmental hazards that are, like, inherent in a story like this to your best advantage. Yeah, and I think also the fact that they found, like, that, that kid's body at the first thing, like, in the planes, like, the chances are so astronomical. Not only finding, like, a kid, but, like, a kid that is not moving and is flat on the ground. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Oregon Trail bad. Oregon Trail bad. So, I, I guess my opinion of this book is that I think that it's very well written. I would be interested in reading more of Almakatsu's stuff, but... I am learning, I think, that historical fiction doesn't really do it for me if it's about something actually horrific that happened historically. Yeah, like, I, I am a big fan of historical fiction, but I prefer historical fiction that comes from a little, a place that's a little vaguer, I suppose. Yeah. I could, like, places where, where there is room to imagine. But something that's so entirely well-documented like this can be a little difficult to write. I think it was interesting for what it is, and I think it did give a good perspective on, like, the pioneers in the trail and stuff, and I, I enjoyed it for that. But I didn't necessarily enjoy that it ended so abruptly and that it left out, like, there's already so much to play on that, like, you need to incorporate all of it, otherwise it's gonna fall short. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I understand, like, you can't have everything in your book, and obviously you're gonna kind of mix some things up just to, like, suit what you're doing, but I don't know. I, I, um, this was not as scary to me as, like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's never that scary when you try to ascribe kind of, like, supernatural motivations to, like, a fucked up thing people did in real life just because human beings are fucked up sometimes. Sometimes reality is worse. Sometimes it is worse. Like, <laughs> sometimes way worse. Yeah, oh, God. Sometimes it's much worse. Man, I still have Donner Party facts if you want me to get into them. I have so many. Um, yeah, we can get into a little bit. I like that you've written Manlit under a couple of the, the <laughs> Donner Party members. That's because it's true. And we will start with Manlit number one, Charles Stanton, point of view character. Basically, he has his whole own messed up backstory that Frankly, is makes me very angry at the person who did that to him, but I, I had heard zero word that it was actually true, so I just won't spoil that for y'all. Basically, he's a single man on the trail, and you get a, a point of view of that in the book of, oh, hey, it's actually kind of dangerous to not be affiliated with anyone in a place where people are dropping like flies, and I, I did enjoy that much, but um, in the book, he was killed by cannibals in the Forlorn Hope Rescue Group when they were going for help initially. But in reality, he was a manlet and he died because he was too short. Sucks. Sucks. Basically, what happened is snowshoes are hard when your legs are small. And so he, uh, during the trip, he curled up into a hollow stump after the rest of the group had left and just died. But uh, that's actually a... That's actually something that I think the book could have gone into, because that's called, uh, that, that is a really specific thing for hypothermia, it's called terminal burrowing, and it's, uh, when you get so cold, you're like, oh, I have to cover myself with something, literally anything, and so, you know? Hypothermia is another thing the human body does that is, like, deeply fucked up. Like, it's very scary. Your responses to both hypothermia and, like, being underwater for too long is something that I do not like to think very much about because they both scare me very much. They do, but we should explain it for our listeners, and so I will do this in the vaguest terms I can. 
basically, when you get real cold, uh, your body is like, well, screw your limbs. We're going to reroute all the heat in your body to your torso and your head. And sometimes that makes you really hot. And when you get really hot, you take off all your clothes and you run around in the snow like an insane person until you pass out. And then you die. See, that wasn't, that wasn't so bad. Or you curl up in a hollow stump and you die. It's called paradoxical undressing, which is when you get very warm, uh, even though you're hypothermic, and your body basically tricks your brain into thinking that you've become warm again. Uh, and so you start taking off all your clothes, even though you are dying of hypothermia, and it's very scary. It also um, has to do with some stuff that actually did come up, both in the book and in real life. When that happens, you really can't feel your limbs anymore. To the extent that, like, you won't really feel temperature in them. And people did and just, like, let their limbs sit in a fire and got, like, third-degree burns and stuff because they just didn't feel them anymore. See, that shit is what scares me. And I'm kind of sad that a lot of that in the book got replaced by rabies zombies. Yeah, it, they mention it offhand once in the book, but, like, it happened several times, like, during one of the rescue parties. Like, somebody's whole leg got in the fire for hours. It was not good. They lived, though. So did you, in your research, find out what happened to the journalist who kind of leaves and goes off to investigate the virus and, like, the mine where it spread? I did, actually. He was totally good. And he left, and he was fine. So you know what? Maybe listen to the guy with the, with the degree in Native Studies next time, guys. Yeah, if I was in the Donner Party, I would simply leave and go home. <laughs> to be fair he didn't leave and go home he's like see ya this sucks i'm out peace and he ended up in california yeah r.i.p to the daughters but he's different yeah right he was actually pretty cool because what he ended up doing was uh james reed spoiler also lives is it a spoiler if it happened like a hundred and something years ago uh well it's extra not a spoiler because we already talked about he was in one of the rescue groups that's right god we will talk more about that but um Basically, he ended up appointing James Reed to take in all of the orphan Donner children. So he, James Reed adopted all of them, and Edwin, the journalist, signed off on that. That's awesome. Right? It was pretty cool. He was in the second rescue party. Basically, he left in the middle to go to war because, you know, he got kicked out of the party for murdering Snyder, as we mentioned earlier. But uh, his daughter snuck him a horse and some, some food and a rifle, and he was like, tight, I'm gonna go join the war. Yeah, he, um, they banished him and he just, like, peaced out until it was time to, like, rescue everybody. Yeah, correct. He got word that they were all stuck and he started a rescue effort that was so good that people were donating before he could even finish talking at, like, his meetups. And also he got the, the literal actual U.S. Navy involved. For him, I guess. Yeah, like, personally, like, there are, there are like, Navy letters from, like, people in the Navy from their squads who had to go rescue the Donners. I mean, good for him, but, like, obviously this never should have happened in the first place, and it's very no, sad. <laughs> you are correct, entirely. There was actually uh, one guy, I think I have it written down here, it might have been John Stark, no affiliation to the Game of Thrones character, uh, but he rescued nine children all by himself. One of the rescue parties, I think it was the third, uh, they were all sitting around a fire pit, and they were like, we have three adults and, like, nine well probably closer to 13 children and we're not gonna make it so we don't know what to do so one of the adults left and the other two adults died and the kids were like well what is there left to do but eat the eat the bodies of the adults as we've been taught and so basically the third party came upon this pit of rabid children 
And I do say pit because the snow was about 20 feet deep. And whenever you made a fire, you made a pit. Like you had to climb out of it. The kids couldn't get out on their own. So they came across this group of uh, children in a little pit with the remains of two adults, like all bloody and just like, we should leave the snow to take care of this because this is fucked up. Except uh, three people were like, no, we're not going to do that. These are children. And so two people took the strongest looking ones that they thought were most likely to survive. And John Stark, the last dude, single-handedly took all nine remaining children back in one trip. And he would carry them a couple feet and then put them down and then go back for the next one. And he did that all the way to California. Wow. Something I was thinking about as you said that is that it's a shame that The Hunger, the book, doesn't go very much into just, like, how intensely traumatized all of these children were. Like, Oh, yeah. It was like, not good. And you can see it a little bit at the end of the book, but it's like... <laughs> I actually almost understand why Alma Katsu made the choice not to do that. Because it's like, how do you write about something like that? Like, I would not be able to find, like, the vocabulary to communicate something that deeply traumatizing, I don't think. There are some horrors that you literally can't put into words. Yeah. Like I said, I had Eliza Donner when she got older. I assume she was three, so she didn't, like, necessarily remember all that much. Uh, she went to the other survivors and asked them about it. I know two people, one lost the ability to cry, and the other cried anytime anything about the party was mentioned at all. It's so sad. I know. Like, that's not even scary. That's just, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it do suck. And I imagine it sucks even worse for people who lost, like, family members like i think the only ones who came out relatively unscathed were like the breens and that's because that one dude carried, saved all of the children but a lot of it was the older kids remembered enough of it to be really traumatized about it but most people if you were over like 20 like you you mostly died except for keesberg we hate him supposedly he opened up a restaurant in sacramento after that that's wild i i'm so mad that he did not face any comeuppance either like in real life or in the book i know he got away with all of it all of it he opened supposedly a restaurant i i have zero proof of that but that's the uh, that's the rumor and he went to california and never ran into anybody from the party again so no one ever tried to murder him so any final thoughts on the hunger on the hunger i think like i said i think it got the the fact that the mortality rate was so high i think it got it right but i think the and i thought it was interesting i think if you want a good look at like what prairie life was probably actually like and like a culturally sensitive look at it at that like in the back of the book it does mention that she had um she had sensitivity readers and i think they did a phenomenal job yeah i agree and i really liked the first part of the book where it was kind of like more of a historical account than a supernatural horror story. Yeah, like, I thought it was, like, I honestly think it would have been scarier if it had kept, like we said, to the real facts of it. But I also understand that, like, how do you begin to write about that? Yeah, and I think it's really well written, and I would be interested in kind of, I don't know if this author has, oh yeah, she has other books, and I'm pretty sure her other books are not all historical fiction, so I would be interested in reading those, and I might uh, actually look into reading some of those soon. 
Yeah, I might actually as well. Like I said, I think, like, if I had to give it five stars, I think on my Goodreads, I gave it four out of five. Because, like I said, the real thing's scarier, but, like, I... I also did immensely enjoy it, and I liked how a lot of sensitive topics were handled in it. I don't like that Teesburg in real life or in the book got away with stuff, but that's accurate. But um, I don't like how certain aspects of his character were necessarily handled, insofar as I don't know why they included child assault in the book when it didn't happen in real life. Yeah, that was a weird choice. Yeah, I get that it was there to make Teesburg, like, abominable and, like, totally irredeemable, and it worked, but... I, I feel like without that, like, they could have probably played off the redemption a little more had they not got into, or had we not already known about the fact that Keyspring continues to do horrible cannibalism. Yes. But yeah, I, I just, mm, there was no reason to do that. That's what I think. I Like, plot-wise, I couldn't find one besides, look at this guy, hate this guy. I think, kind of, overall, my feelings about this book is that it... It's very well written. A lot of parts are kind of genuinely unsettling or disturbing, but it takes a lot of liberties with the historical facts that don't necessarily make sense to me. Yeah, some of the, like I said, it's a really well documented thing that happened. So some of, and I understand having to bend the truth for for some of this, such as, like, Jean-Baptiste was a guy who was there, one of the native guides, but he was uh, swapped out for Thomas because, uh, like, for plot reasons. And I get how you do have to twist some things in historical fiction to make it work. But there were also some things that just didn't need to be there. I was not sure that we were going to land on the same place with this book because you seemed very enthusiastic about it when we were talking about it earlier this week. So it's, it's interesting that we kind of agree. <laughs> Listen, I just really like history. I also just, like, I feel like I don't read a lot of historical fiction because it's not necessarily a genre that interests me very much. I don't know. Whereas I, I'm um, like, oh, historical fiction, that's awesome. Yeah. Whereas, like, I have friends who are very into history. And yeah, it just, like, like I said, it really depends on what is being, like, if you're doing a general, a lot of historical fiction books are, like, it's generally set in the Victorian era, or it's generally set in medieval times, and it's just kind of, like, realism based on those details for world building, and not necessarily the people involved, unless they're, like, minor side characters. Whereas this was very much, very different than most historical fiction I've read, because it is in your face about, like, these are all real people, and it is well-documented what happened to them. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that I've ever read a horror novel like that before, so this was an interesting read for me. Oh, so it was unique to you, too. I, I don't read a lot of horror in general, but I thought it was unique, but I wasn't sure if it, like, actually was. Yeah, I think this was, like, the first horror novel I've read where it was, like, based on a really, really well-documented historical thing that happened but it also kind of tried to give it a supernatural twist i can't really think of any other book i've read that was like that at all i've got um, nothing unless you count medieval historical fiction uh people believing in dragons yeah wait unless you count the stephen king book where the guy travels back in time to try and stop the kennedy assassination i need which... to read that Oh, it's really good. There's a mini-series based on it on Hulu that I haven't finished, but it's supposed to be good. Shout out to Stephen King on this tiny new podcast. But even that isn't really horror. It's like science fiction and... Um, yeah, because it's time travel. 
yeah, it's it's time travel, and a lot of it is like he goes like kind of the plot of the book is that he and his time travel portal only takes him back to a specific date and it's like the same date every time he goes through it so when he comes back to the modern day and then goes back through it's the same day and like he just gets reset but it's like a day that's like several years before the kennedy assassination so it's basically like a guy from 2013 has to go through this time travel portal and then like live in the 60s for two years until he can stop the Kennedy assassination. If I were a scientist, I would simply not invent a portal that only did a Groundhog Day on me. Well, it's not like he he didn't, like, invent it. He just, like, finds a magical time portal. If I were someone, I would simply not use the magical time portal. Goodness. I, um, I enjoyed it, though, so you would probably like it. But yeah, I think that is all that we have to say about the hunger do you have anything that you want to plug like your social media or your projects or just a book that you've read recently that you particularly liked that wasn't this one uh let's see read my web serial i do a lgbt fantasy detective web serial it's called uh quoria go to quoriaserial.com and read that because it's good and also read Marn stuff. Uh, Prairie Song is a post-apocalyptic uh, road trip. It's LGBT as is mine and is extremely good. So please go read it. And also read Antlers Colorado if you like more supernatural uh, mystery stuff. Because it's really good. can't believe you came on my podcast to plug my projects. I will do what I like. And where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at Paladin Pals on Twitter. I am at Corp Survivors on Twitter. If you are here, you may already know me from the Argonauts podcast, which is a podcast where my friend Andrew and I talk about alternate reality games. Uh, Andrew tries to solve them, and I tell him what he did wrong. Hey guys, it's Future Marn. Uh, this is the part of the outro where Past Marn makes a joke about there not being a Twitter for the show, uh, but that is not true anymore. You can find us on Twitter at DeadLetterPod. But until then, uh, I am Marn, your host, and this has been another meeting of the Dead Letter Society. I'm Saker. And I'm Evan. And our podcast is It's All Been Done, a Bare Naked Ladies podcast. Hey, what's that podcast about, Ev? So, do you know of a band called Bare Naked Ladies? One week. Yeah, yeah, that's one of them. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah, I know yeah, of them. Did you ever want to learn more about them? Or... Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, well, then this is the podcast for you because we teach you nothing with various guests. Yeah, like uh, like Matt Besser. Holy we shit. Climbed in a second story window and partied in this house where we barely. Didn't know at all the people. That was crazy. Holy fuck, Mike Mitchell. Why? Well, I, I don't know how how like how much you guys really do love bare naked ladies. Justin McElroy. Grab your tongue. Grab your tongue, and I want you to say Our "born tongue. on a pirate ship." Born on a pirate ship. You were born on a pile of shit, and many more. So check it out. But also, if you don't like bare naked ladies, we talk about them probably like a third of the time. So. Uh, yes. That's every Tuesday, wherever fine podcasts are sold. We could make a board game about it.